Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. In this series, Pastor Kirk Hall will be teaching through the book of the Bible known as the Revelation. At this time, open your Bible as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to your heart. You guys open up your Bibles to Revelation and we will be going through this high altitude um, jet tour, flyover, overview of this entire wonderful book. So we began in chapter 1, and in chapter 1, we quickly realized the purpose of this revelation. Chapter 1, verse 1, says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that this is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So when we look at that 1-1, we see the revelation of Jesus Christ. We talked about in our uh, first few lessons what that was talking about, the Apocalypsus Jesu Christu. This is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. This is what this is all about. Uh, many times, as, as we spoke when we were going through this, people want to make revelation weird. It's not weird. It's not goofy. It's not kooky. You don't have to get uh, all these ideas and outlandish uh, visions from somewhere else to understand this book. This, this is what it is. Just as we've done in this study, we read through it. What did it do? It unveiled for us Christ. We see Christ at the very beginning. We see Christ all the way through. We see Christ at the very end. The purpose of this is Christ. And so don't lose sight of that in everything that you see in Revelation. I hope this is not your last time to open this book. Um, open it frequently. Um, understand it more and more. But we see the purpose there in one one is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Then we saw when we read verse 2, verse 2 tells us what? This is the Word of God. This is His Word. It is as much His Word as Genesis is, and Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is the Word of God. So when we look at the Word of God, we know that it is absolute. It is infallible. We know that it is inerrant. There are no mistakes here. We have seen no mistakes. Everything that this book says that is going to come to pass is going to come to pass. Take that to heart. Verse 3, we saw a blessing. And I, I, we harped on this for many, many times throughout this study. He tells us in verse 3, a familiar part, I hope to you by this time. It said, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. He talked about the blessing of reading and the blessing of hearing it. We have been blessed. I can tell you this, teaching through it. Um, again, this is not the first time I've ever taught Revelation, but I'm blessed, even more so than the times in the past where we looked at this wonderful book that promises us a blessing if we will read it, teach it, hear it. Those of you who have heard it, I hope that you share the same sentiment that you have received blessing from God because he's faithful to do exactly what he said that he would do. Verse 4 of chapter 1 talks to us about the recipients. He says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. We see the recipients originally of this letter were those seven churches of Asia Minor. And we talked about those seven churches, and we'll talk about them a little more again tonight. But we talked about those seven churches, how they were literal churches, a literal 
seven churches that this letter was delivered to originally, but also how those churches, um, they give us a look into churches even in our time. We, we see that the same blessings and the same warnings can come to the churches even today so that we find ourselves hopefully being and in, in doing what we need to be and do as a body of believers so that we don't get a rebuke like Laodicea and Thyatira, so that we are faithful to what Christ has commissioned us to do. He lets us know the recipients of the letter originally. We have it in our hand now, so we're recipients as well. Verse 7, we see in verse 7, if we read that together, not to skip ahead, but there's no way we can look at all of it tonight, it says, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. We see in the first chapter, it starts out with the imminent return of Christ. And we learn this, that that word soon does not mean today or tomorrow. It means that these things are going to happen quickly. Once these things are put into action, they are going to flow sequentially and smoothly until the very end. We just finished 22. We know what happens in the very end, or what we would know as the beginning of eternity. Revelation 1.19, we see there a blessing, and we saw many beatitudes or blessings in Revelation, actually seven total, if you'll remember with me, but 19 gives us a blessing, and we have been reminded of that over and over and over, verse 19. He says, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. What, what is seen, what is now, what will take place later. We see in that that John is giving us a blessing of knowing what will happen. Uh, this, this is not going to take us off guard, right? None of you men should be taken off guard by any of the things that we have seen here. That verse 19 also is going to be a key, as we're going to see in a moment, to understanding many, many things as we have in this book. Revelation 1, again, 10 through 20. John sees the Lord for the first time since he ascended into heaven. And I remember when I was there, it thrilled my heart uh, to get to think about that for John. John, who was close to the Lord, in fact, referred to himself as the disciple that Christ loved. He has not seen Christ since he ascended into heaven. And then all of a sudden, here in this revelation, John sees the glorified Christ there in heaven. And so chapter 1 ends with those things, and then we move to chapters 2 and 3. And in chapters 2 and 3, we have the seven churches that we saw in chapter 1, that these churches are the recipients originally of this letter. The seven churches describe to us seven literal churches in that time, but also they are symbolic of churches throughout the entire church age, the age that we are in now. In fact, when we look at the seven churches, it is an indicator that he is talking about the church age that began at Pentecost and is still going on to this day. We saw Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. That was that uncompromising but unloving church. Remember, they were orthodox, 
But he had this one thing against them. They had forgotten their first love. And we talked about how important it is to not lose sight of your first love, to not lose sight of your love that you have for Christ, for his kingdom, for his word, for his gospel, all the things associated with Christ. We see that at Ephesus, those warnings to them. Then we move in chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, to Smyrna. Smyrna was that suffering church, and that suffering church that was being purified by trials, by fire. And there was no rebuke for Smyrna because a suffering church is a vibrant church. No matter how you look at it, a church that is willing to endure suffering for Christ will be a blessed church. And we saw that at Smyrna, suffering, suffering persecution, all because of Christ, because they were dedicated to believe that He and He alone was the only way to the one true God. He was the only way to salvation. In a society that believed in many gods, in many false deities, Smyrna said, it is Christ and it is Christ alone. And they suffered for that. And remember, we were warned, when you stand and you say Christ and Christ alone, you're going to suffer for that. People are going to not understand that, especially even in our day where people are, again, thinking that there are many ways that lead to God. But we know this, there is but one way, the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him, and that is Jesus the Christ. Then in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, we saw Pergamum, the church of worldly compromise. Remember, they embraced heresy in the name of unity. This is that ecumenical church that we see even so often in our time, where where for the sake of unity, we'll compromise a true and sound doctrine. We'll, we'll embrace false teaching just so that we can all get along, right? We, 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 we want to coexist. How many times have we seen those bumper stickers and placards on the back of a car? We see that that was a compromise. They compromised for, with the world, with false religion, just for the sake of unity, and they were re- rebuked for it. And then Thyatira, as we move to chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, tolerant church. This was that tolerant church. They tolerated the heresy of a Jezebelian female who had risen to control. She had risen to control due to a lack of standing in biblical truth. As the Bible still says, man, a woman is not permitted to teach or to have authority over a man. That is talking about the context of the church. Here at Thyatira, they had compromised and became tolerant to this Jezebel. And that's what Scripture refers to her as, barring a term from the Old Testament of a controlling female. Maybe her name was Jezebel, probably not, but she was acting as a Jezebel. And I told you then, my mentor in the faith said you have two people always in the church. You will have a Jezebel, a controlling woman, and you will have a Judas who is a backstabbing betrayer. And so be on watch for them at all times. So Thyatira had fallen to the leadership of this female due to a lack of sound doctrine, but also due to a lack of firm male leadership. Did you hear me, men? Firm male leadership. You are created to lead. Step up and lead. Never do we desire to see the women of this church leading in your position. We have failed at that point, and we give ground for Jezebelian heresy to come in. So, Thyatira, the tolerant church, tolerating that Jezebel. Next, we saw Sardis in chapter 3, as chapter 3 began. This is the church of the walking dead, and many of us have visited that church while on vacation. Um, They were dead in their service to the Lord. They were dead in their spiritual fervor and their unction. They were just 
lifeless, zero passion at all. We can't fall into that trap. We must have passion for Christ. We must have more passion for Christ than we do for our hobbies. We must have more passion for Christ than we do for our jobs and our livelihood. We must be a group of men who are passionate for Christ. This church failed in that area to the point where they were just walking around, going through the motions, dead. We must be aware we're prone to the same thing. All of these dangers that we see, we're all prone to them. We are no different than the people who attended these churches. We must guard ourselves against such things. Then we see the church of Philadelphia there, chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. We know that Philadelphia means brotherly love. This is the church of the faithful. They remained faithful amid all the difficulty and all the persecution that they faced. They remained faithful to Christ. There was no rebuke against them. They, in fact, were only commended by the Lord. What an example to us all, this church who remains faithful no matter what they face, no matter what comes their way. That was Philadelphia. And then we know Laodicea. We learned some things about Laodicea that many of us had never even considered. Jesus was on the outside knocking. Why? He had been shut out. Laodicea was the church that shuts out Jesus. What a shame. The church that shuts out Jesus is no church at all. Did you hear that? They are no church at all. Jesus rebukes them because they have shut him out. What did he say? You're lukewarm. You're lukewarm. What does he say he's going to do with that lukewarm, indifferent, ineffective, Christless church if they do not repent and turn to Christ? What did he say he's going to do? He's going to spew them out of his mouth. They are useless to him. Why? They are no church at all. So, at the end of chapter 3, the church is not mentioned or seen again in the entire book of Revelation until chapter 22. We, we pointed that out when we walked through this. Here we see at the end of chapter 3, the church age comes to a close. It comes to a close with the mystery and the secret of the rapture that was revealed to and through Paul in the New Testament. We teach that this is when the rapture occurs between the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. Many people don't want to believe in a rapture or call it a rapture. That's fine. Call it an ascension because that's what Jesus did. He ascended into heaven. John chapter 14 says that if he goes, he's also going to come and he's going to take you to where he is going, to that place that he has prepared for you. So I find that if you don't believe in a rapture, you're going to have to erase John chapter 14. You're going to have to erase 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You're going to have to erase the things that the New Testament authors wrote about such things, where we meet the Lord in the air and we are changed and we are taken to that place that He has prepared for us. Why I teach and why I believe that this happens between 3 and 4 is simply because when we get to verse 4, we see that often seen phrase here in Revelation, after this. After what? After the church age. He speaks to the seven churches the church age ends, and he says, After this, I looked, and there before me was a door open in heaven, and the voice I had 
first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here. What an interesting statement. Come up here. This is John being spiritually raptured in this vision, just as he will be physically raptured at some point in time. He is then taken into heaven, and he sees the things that he sees and the things that he then pins under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us to look at even now. Revelation chapter 4 begins with a trip to heaven. It shows us what will take place. Revelation chapter 4 to 22 is that section of will take place. Chapter 1, chapter 3. Remember, he told us there, if we go all the way back to where he tells us that he is going to show us things that will take place, or he, in actuality, tells John this, this is where we start that will take place time, after the church age. And this is what we're going to see. He goes and he's taken and he's shown heaven. Revelation 4, as we see, John is snatched up, grabbed up, raptured up, however you want to describe it. He's taken up to heaven. John sees the throne of God. He sees living creatures, which we, of course, determine to be cherubim and seraphim. They're angelic beings around the throne. He sees the church represented by the 24 elders. We come to the conclusion that that's the church because they're seated on thrones. They are ruling with Christ. They are wearing white. That white represents the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed and now imparted to them. They have those crowns on those head, their heads, those Stephanos crowns, the victor's crown, not the diadem crowns of a king, but the victor's crowns that Christ has given to them. And what are they doing? They are all worshiping. Chapter 4, verse 8, we see worship going on here in heaven. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings, day and night. They never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Verse 11, we see more worship. It goes on there. It says, you are worthy, O Lord, and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Heaven is a place of worship. Worship is going on there now. John gives us a glimpse into that and how beautiful that is in chapter 4. Chapter 5 begins, we see the scroll and the worthy lamb here in chapter 5. In fact, chapter 5, verse 9, it says, And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every tribe and language and people and nation, and how beautiful it is to see those who are purchased by the blood of Christ being brought into the kingdom of God, even in the time that we live in. Uh, just this, this past uh, weekend, weekend before last, excuse me, in a new member fellowship, uh, we had our first ever Spanish-speaking new member fellowship. We had our English new member fellowship going on. Dario was back in the back, and he was translating to those who speak Spanish, who wanted to be members of Key Life Fellowship. And I had to do everything that I could to contain myself because I kept hearing that every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. What a glorious thing it is to know that, that Jesus did not just purchase one certain group. 
but he purchases the elect from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We see that there in chapter 5. Chapter 6, we see some very interesting things about to unfold. We see the seven seals. And those seven seals are going to be opened by the one who is worthy, right? Remember in 5, they were looking for someone who was worthy to open the seals. And they couldn't find anyone. They looked on earth. They looked in heaven. And then there was the Lamb who was worthy to open the seals. And here we're going to see that begins to happen in chapter 6. And it says in verse 1, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. He told John to come, and he began to unfold things for him. Verses 1 and 2 of this, we see the Antichrist riding on a white horse. Many people want to try to say that's Christ, and it's not Christ at all. It is one who is trying to pretend or who is posing as Christ. It is very clear in its context that it is not Christ. Christ will return on a white stallion. But before that, there will be an Antichrist who tries to mimic Christ and tries to take his glory as Satan has deemed to attempt to do. We see secondly, when that second seal is open, the first seal is open, we see that white horse, the Antichrist, he comes to this earth. The second seal, we see worldwide war, riding on the red horse. These are, of course, what we know as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You see that red horse in verses 3 and 4. Then the third seal You see worldwide famine riding on the black horse, verses 5 and 6. There will be a worldwide famine during this time of tribulation under the Antichrist. The fourth seal is death riding that pale horse. And we will see death like the world hasn't seen death. Verses 7 through 8 speak of this pale horse named death. In fact, a quarter of the entire earth's population will die at the opening of this seal. Seal number five is open. God prepares to avenge his martyrs there with the opening of seal number five. Remember, if you would, in chapter six, verse nine, we see this come out. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the soul of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? We know that he does, but he doesn't do it at this time. That seal is opened as a promise that it will happen. The seventh seal begins here with an intermission between the sixth and seventh seal. We see that God is going to, in that intermission, show mercy. We see that in chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. We see him showing mercy to a group of people. 12,000 from the 12 tribes, which equal 144,000. God, in the midst of beginning to pour his wrath out on this earth, reserved for himself 144,000 Jewish people who come to faith in Christ. It is the remnant that he has promised them who who they in turn will go out and they will reach others for the cause of Christ. This is the beginning of Israel's redemption. There is 
a further and future redemption of Israel. God has not written her completely off. You have to understand that. To neglect to see that is to really confuse yourself in many areas of Scripture. But if you will embrace that, that at the end of the church age, now Israel is going to have their time of redemption. Though we know how the story goes. When Christ came and he came to Israel, they rejected him. But aren't you thankful that when you were living in your rejection and your sin, he didn't write you off, but he graciously pursued you. He's going to graciously pursue the elect from Israel. We see that unfold in chapter 7 in this intermission. Now, at the beginning of chapter 8, there is the opening of the seventh seal. And what happens here is this begins, or what we would say ignites, the seven trumpet blasts. With the opening of the seventh seal is also the blast of the first trumpet. So we move to chapter 8 and through chapter 8 into chapter 9, 8 verse 6 all the way to 9 verse 21. We see these seven trumpets bringing great judgment upon the earth. Remember the escalation of that. There were the seals, they were open, and things got pretty rough. And Then there were the trumpet blasts, and things got even rougher. And then we're going to see that it goes into those woes, right? Remember the three woes? And those three woes marked out what? The seven bowls of wrath, the seven plagues that we see will be unfolded later. But in 8 and 9, we see the seven trumpets bringing judgment upon the earth. The first one, when it blasts, we see hell and fire mixed with blood. A third of the earth is burned. <coughs> Excuse me. A third of the trees is burned. All green grass, burn. The second blast happens. A third of the seas turn to blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea die. It's going to smell great, isn't it? And a third of all the ships were destroyed during that second blast. The third blast, a third of the waters were polluted by a comet or a meteor of some sort that falls to the earth and into these waters. Remember, they were polluted. Then we see the fourth trumpet blast, God is going to bring darkness upon the earth by striking one-third of the sun, the moon, and the stars. It's going to be darker and darker during this time of tribulation. Chapter 9, we see the fifth trumpet. It begins with recounting the fall of Lucifer, moves toward the release of demonic hordes from the abyss to wreak havoc on the earth. You remember that in that lesson. There was a break in there. And then there was another blast that will release four fierce demons who were given power to kill one-third of mankind along with their 200 million man or, or demon army. <coughs> and so those demons will then be given power, um, and that power will be to strike and kill men with plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that come from their mouths. You say, man, what in the world is that? I don't know. I've never seen anything like it. I told you that when I was there. There's many times in Revelation we have to stop and just say these are things that we know not of. These are things that we have never seen. We have really no good comparison. All we can do is take into account what God says. And he says that these creatures from the abyss will come, these fierce demons. And they're going to kill a third of mankind in this way. And then we see the seventh trumpet. <coughs> but it's not seen until chapter 11. Chapter 11, we see that. Before that, chapter 10, an angel announces 
No more delay regarding the day of the Lord and God's final wrath upon the earth. He says, there's no more. This, this thing is happening. There is no stopping it. It is not going to be quenched until it is completely fulfilled. Then we know John eats a scroll, right? We talked about that when we were there. That's pretty interesting. He eats a scroll, and he eats this scroll, and it is both bitter and it is sweet, reminding us that the judgment of God is bitter, but it is also sweet. It's bitter because many will spend eternity in hell during the wrath of God forever. That causes us to see the bitter side of it, but it's sweet because those of us who have surrendered to Christ will be with Him forever in a glorified state. So John ate that bittersweet scroll reminding us of the bittersweet nature of the wrath and judgment of God. In 11, we see the two witnesses. And these witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days, or if you do your math, three and a half years. They will prophesy for half of this tribulation period, which we know is made up of a, an entire seven-year period. And then they will be killed by the Antichrist in some way, only to be resurrected to life after three and a half days. Remember, these men will be killed, and they will lay in the streets for three and a half days. Every news channel in the world is going to be broadcasting them, and the world's going to celebrate because they think they've won a great victory. But then, after the three and a half days... Uh, these men are then taken up and transported into heaven. Again, if you don't believe in a rapture, there's another example of one for you. These men, nobody argues about where they raptured up. They were. They were taken into heaven uh, because that's the way God does things. He took them to be with him. We see that in Revelation chapter 11, 11 through 12. You can read it when you have time. The end of 11 marks the final trumpet blast. 11 verse 15 when we look there, 11.15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. What a, an exciting time in the book of <laughs> Revelation when that seventh trumpet blast occurs. This blast indicates that Christ's reign on earth is near. It is near. We're going to see it unfold as we continue to walk through this. And it causes all of heaven to break out in an exclamation of praise and excitement. We see that there in chapter 11. However, though his reign is coming, the unbelieving world in that time is still in utter opposition to it. They still do not and have not repented of their sin and believed. We get to Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 13. and We see Israel... And she is that woman who gives birth to a son. We know that son is Christ, the Messiah, who the dragon attempts to kill. And we talked about the various ways that we saw that happen. Uh, we, saw, we saw that happen through Herod, even in the literal life of Christ. We saw it at the cross where in the mind of evil, this was the end of Christ, but we know this it was only the beginning. In fact, it is where he finished what he set out to do there at the cross. We see that seven-headed dragon known as Satan. And he has throughout history controlled and corrupted world ruler after world ruler and regime after regime. He has and still is today. People say, I just don't trust the government. Good. Because there are many governments and those governments are controlled by man. And if they are controlled by man and not controlled by God, there is the risk that they are controlled by Satan. 
We're going to see him do that through the Antichrist like this world has never seen. So he gives us that picture there of a war in heaven between the dragon and his demons against Michael and God's angels. Satan and his demons are then thrown to the earth. This also points in this section of 12 and 11, it also points to Israel's suffering that will occur under the Antichrist during the time of tribulation. This is the time of their suffering. And through their suffering, God is going to raise up a remnant. In that, he is going to redeem many. He's going to do it again by the influence of the 144,000 and those two witnesses that we saw that were resurrected to new life. Chapter 13 reveals for us, as we go back into the order of things and how it plays out, the triaxis of evil. You remember when we were there? I refused to call it an unholy trinity. I don't want to use the word trinity to describe anything that Satan's involved in. It is a triaxis of evil. It is a pretend and false trinity. It is no trinity at all. That triaxis of evil is revealed. The Antichrist, who is the beast out of the sea, along with the beast out of the earth, who is the false prophet. Both of these figures, figures coupled with the power that they are given by the dragon, that seven-headed monster, um, Satan, to take over the entire unbelieving world. And that is exactly what they will do. They will take over the entire unbelieving world through governmental authority and through false religion. Triaxis of evil, or what we call this unholy system, will be marked by the number of the beast's name, which is 666, the number of the name of the beast. Chapter 13, verse 18, gives us great clarity on that if we'll pay attention to it. It says, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is the man's number. His number is 666. It is man's number, 666. Now, we know as we looked at this, that is imperfection, imperfection, imperfection. Or we could say sin, sin, sin. Wickedness, wickedness, wickedness. God would be described as 777, holy, holy, holy. Here we see man described completely opposite of that. This is definitely in regard to unbelieving man and the name of the beast, the Antichrist. And so he is everything that evil represents. He is the unholy triaxis of evil. His regime, the beast, the Antichrist, uh, the beast, excuse me, the false prophet, and we know who is behind all of that, and that is Satan, the dragon himself. We move to chapter 14. You guys still with me? Sort of. We move to chapter 14. The lamb rescues his virgin remnant from Israel. This is where the lamb rescues the 144,000 and all their converts from Israel. We see 14 begins there. Then I looked, and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Here we see the promised redemption of these from Israel. These <coughs> men are sealed by God, just as we who are in Christ now have been sealed by God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he rescues them just as he has promised, taking them into his presence. We also see there in 14, three angels. And these angels are bringing messages from God. One of them proclaims the gospel. And we talked about that when we were there. How gracious is God that he would send, but before we see the bowls of wrath that are going to happen in chapters 15 and 16, 
before he sends the full fury of his wrath upon this earth, he is so merciful that he sends an angel who flies around the earth and who preaches the gospel one more time. So we see an angel who proclaims or preaches the gospel, bringing a message from God. One warns of the coming fall of the world system in Babylon. Another angel flies the earth, warning Babylon's going to fall. Babylon's going to fall. Why is that important? Because everyone in the known earth will be captivated by the system of Babylon at that time. They will have succumbed to the beast. They will have taken his mark upon their forehead or on their hand. And the angel is saying, it's over for Babylon. Now understand this. It will be for a short season. The greatest empire the world has ever seen. And all of a sudden this angel is going to fly around and tell them, Babylon's about to fall. Then there will be that third angel who will proclaim judgment on all who follow the beast and have his number on their hand or forehead. He's going to proclaim one last time, don't succumb to the beast. Don't follow this mastermind of deceit. He's evil. We see that in Revelation 14. Now in Revelation 15 and 16, after God has shown mercy by sending these angels, three angels, to give very important messages. Follow Christ, the gospel. That Babylon is falling. Don't be a part of Babylon. And then that there is judgment that is coming upon all who take the mark of the beast and show their allegiance to the triaxis of evil. Then in 15 and 16, we see the seven bowls of wrath, the seven plagues as we will see them unfold upon the earth. God's going to exercise his full fury and wrath within these seven bowl judgments. Bowl one, ugly and painful sores and festering boils all over the bodies of those who wear the mark. Bowl number two, the entire sea turned to blood. Everything in the ocean dies. Every single living thing dies in all the oceans of the world. Bowl number three, fresh water becomes blood. Now it's no longer useful. Bowl number four, the people will be scorched with fire from the sun. The sun is literally going to scorch the people. Uh, I joked when I was there, we hadn't seen global, global warming yet, but we will. Scorched. Bowl five, utter darkness falls on the Antichrist and his kingdom. Babylon goes completely black. Pitch black darkness falls upon them. The fifth bowl, the opening of the sixth bowl, the Euphrates is dried up, allowing the kings from the east to participate in Armageddon. The Euphrates dries up. All of the kings from the east who are now coming out against Christ or will come out against Christ shortly can now cross over into the valley of Megiddo where God is drawing them sovereignly without them even realizing it. Bowl 6, the Euphrates dries up and these armies begin to march. Bowl 7, God puts the exclamation point on his wrath with the greatest earthquake in history. The greatest earthquake in history happens there, one like the world has never seen. We know why that, that earthquake happens. We're going to see those details as they unfold. Revelation 17 and 18, the Antichrist kingdom falls. The Antichrist kingdom falls. The fall of the false prophet and false religion and that false system of Babylon that we talked about 
falls. That corrupt governmental system, that corrupt economical system, and that corrupt religious system falls. Revelation 19, we get a clear indication as to why. Why did this earthquake happen? Why did these systems fall? Watch this. Christ returns to the earth. When he returns to the earth, he will set foot on the Mount of Olives, as Zechariah said, and the earth is going to quake like the world has never seen. Revelation 19, we see the greatly anticipated return of Christ. It is the climactic event. Remember, we were way back in chapter 1. It is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsus Jesu Christu. Here it is. He comes back to the earth, the moment we have all been waiting for. Or maybe you don't agree, the moment I've been waiting for. Christ is going to come back. He's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives, and he is going to return on that white stallion there in chapter 19. We see this happen. We see heaven is opened up. Christ is on the white horse, along with those dressed in white who will return with him, his church. 19 verse 11, I didn't plan on reading it, but let's do it. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming back, just as he said that he would. Christ returns to the earth on this white stallion with his armies. He and his armies, if we continue to read in 19, they then proceed out to the valley of Megiddo, or what many times in the Old Testament you see referred to as the valley of Jehoshaphat. This is Armageddon. This is the battle of Armageddon that you have heard about most of the time incorrectly your whole life. And he goes out there with his armies to meet the armies of the Antichrist and the nations that he controls through his rule. And there they are destroyed. And how are they destroyed? They're destroyed by the Word of God. Not the power and technology of men. Not the wisdom and ideology of humanity. They are destroyed by the sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Christ, which is the Word of God. The prophet says that the blood will reach the bridle of the horses there in the valley of Megiddo. Remember, that valley is where Napoleon looked across that lush green field, and he says this is the greatest battlefield that the world has ever seen. And it will be the greatest battlefield that the world has ever seen. Little did, little did Napoleon know that he was a prophet. But he spoke those things, and it will be Christ will destroy wicked unbelievers with the word of his mouth. The Antichrist there is defeated. The beast and the false prophet are cast alive into the lake of burning sulfur. And we know in Revelation 20, 
that Satan is bound in the abyss for a thousand years. That's important because for a thousand literal years, a thousand literal, literal years, this is the millennium. This is the millennial reign of Christ. The millennium will begin in Jerusalem when Christ destroys the Antichrist and his armies, when the false prophet and the beast are cast, are cast into the lake of burning sulfur, Satan will then be bound in the abyss for a thousand years, and Christ will reign upon the earth. A little literal reign. I said that many times during that session. I want to say it again. There is nothing to suggest anything else. It's not a symbolic number, as many would assume. If it was symbolic, it wouldn't occur right there six times in seven verses. We saw it. We looked at it. A thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. Why was it so adamantly placed there? Because God wants us to know it is a period of a thousand years. and He will reign, fulfilling all of His promises regarding the Messianic kingdom to Israel. We can look in the Old Testament and we see many, many promises of a messianic kingdom on this earth that have not yet been fulfilled. They will be fulfilled for 1,000 years. How long? 1,000 years. It's not symbolic. It is literal. A 1,000-year period. Nothing in all of Scripture suggests anything else. When those 1,000 years are over, we know this, that Satan will be released to gather the remaining unbelievers from the world. I, I thought it was interesting People ask me uh, when we taught that lesson about the thousand years, they said, well, well Satan's going to be released. Well, well Jesus already dis destroyed all the armies out there. Yeah, but there were women and there were children and there were people all scattered out throughout the earth who were not fighting in that battle, and they were all unbelievers. And here they are out there for a thousand years reproducing. And Satan is going to be released to go out and to draw them and attempt to draw them to what is known as the battle of, against Gog and Magog, that is the system of the world that will exist after the reign of the Antichrist on this earth during the millennial reign of Christ there in Jerusalem. Now, a thousand years are over, Satan goes out, he is released, and he gathers these people. What, are, what, are, what does he gather them for? Uh, he gathers them because he thinks one more time that I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to dethrone Christ. But remember this. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You're going to strike his heel, but he is going to crush your head. At the cross, we know this. It was taken care of and finished there. But we're going to see here is the ultimate crushing of the enemy's head. Pardon me if I get a little excited about that. The thousand years are over. Satan brings his forces against Jerusalem this time. Many people want to say that this is another reference to Armageddon. In Armageddon, they were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of Christ. Here, God rains down fire from heaven and consumes them all. There's not even a fight that begins. Fire is rained down from heaven. They are consumed. Then, Satan is going to join the beast and the false prophet in the lake of burning sulfur forever. Then we know at the end of chapter 20, all of the unbelieving dead, they will be raised and they will stand in judgment for their unbelief and their sin at what is known as the great white throne judgment. Chapter 20, 
verse 11. Let's read it together. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence. It rolled up like a scroll. The earth, as we know it, is destroyed, and it is recreated in a moment as God speaks it into existence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. We learned in Daniel what those books are. They are every evil deed that an unbeliever has committed. Aren't you thankful that our evil deeds have been cast as far as the east is from the west? They are cast down to the ocean floor. They are not remembered any longer or held to our charge. The dead were judged according to what they had done, their deeds, their sins, as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. All the unbelievers thrown in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Watch what he says again in 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Aren't you thankful, gentlemen, if you are in Christ, that your name has been written in the book of life since before the foundations of the earth? There is hope in Christ and in Christ alone. You see Revelation 20, God's final judgment on wicked man. Revelation 21, God makes everything new. A new heaven, a new earth, the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God comes down out of heaven, prepared and adorned as a bride. Oh, and as we talked about that, we had a glimpse of that groom standing there at the altar when those back doors are open and that beautiful bride in that expensive dress that she paid way too much money for and, and the expensive hairdresser who made her hair look more beautiful than ever before and an expensive makeup artist who, who doctored her up and she opens those doors and I've watched time and time again the grooms who get weak in their knees. Big tough guys start crying like little girls because there's nothing like the sight of that beautiful bride. And he makes that comparison. When new, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, it ought to excite you to think about that. That is our eternal dwelling place in the presence of God. He makes everything new. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God coming down. The new concept that we talked about when we were there, that concept was the fact that God is dwelling with mankind. He hasn't dwelt with mankind since the Garden of Eden at the fall of Adam and Eve. Here we see all of that restored. It's made new. And he's now dwelling with man again and man with him. This new concept that we will live in. No more death. No more sickness. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more persecution. No more suffering. We will live with him in a completely glorified state. We will be clothed in the glory and righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is not a righteousness of our own but it is the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us by the grace of God. No more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. God makes everything new. Anyone longing for that day? Verse 22. We saw in verse 22 the final invitation. Oh, what a God we serve, men. He gives a final invitation there in 22. It ought to be fresh on your mind. You just studied it a few weeks ago. An invitation to be ready for coming judgment. An invitation to be cleansed of your sin and saved through Jesus Christ. We see that there in verses 14 and through 17. And we see strong warnings that he gives us. We talked about this last week, those strong warnings. He tells us in verse 18, 
of chapter 22 and 19. Read it with me again. It's very important. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Every one of you have heard the words of the prophecy of this book. From 1 verse 1 all the way to the very end here in 22 verse 21. You have heard the words of the prophecy of this book. Therefore, pay attention to this warning. He says, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes, it takes uh, words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. We talked last week how that doesn't mean that a person can be saved and then get unsaved and be removed from the promises of God. What it's saying is this, if you dare take away or add to the word of God, you prove without a doubt that you are truly an unbeliever. So pay attention to that. Take this seriously. Hear that warning. Don't alter this book and don't alter anything in regard to the perfect canonized word of God. It is complete. It is lacking nothing. Everything that we need for life and godliness is found within these 66 books. Treat them with the reverence that they deserve. He gives us strong warnings about altering the book. Don't do it. Then he ends with Jesus promising his imminent return, and he offers grace to God's people. Let's look at that again. Verse 20 of 22. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. What hope that brings, that Jesus himself testifies to his imminent return. This is not Kurt telling you about Jesus' imminent return. It's not a preacher that you love to listen to on the radio or on a podcast or watch on TV. This is Christ himself saying, I am coming soon. When the world says, your, your, your Savior is a hoax. He promised to return, and he hadn't returned yet. He's coming soon. That means imminent. When these things begin to transpire, look up. Your redemption draweth near. What a day it's going to be. He says, but Lord, I'm coming soon. Amen, John says. Come, Lord Jesus. John wanted to see it in his lifetime. You want to see it in your lifetime? I see it in my lifetime. Come now, Lord Jesus. Come. And he says this, and he ends with grace just as he started with grace. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. To think that he would care enough to at the end of this wonderful book remind us of and to offer us grace again is astounding. Grace to those of you who are in Christ. So that concludes our study of Revelation. You made it through chapter 1 all the way to chapter 22 tonight. But what I want to do is I want to shore some things up for you. I know we're pressed on time. I'll do it as quickly as I can. I promise you that I'll give you an eschatological timeline of events because some things in Revelation, they're they are in sequential order, and they're very easy to follow, and you can actually make a timeline out of some things, but some things you get a glimpse at what had happened, some things you get a glimpse at what will happen, and so sometimes it becomes unclear. So let me give you this before we depart. Remember, Revelation 1.19, uh, he said, I'm going to show you the things what you have seen. He says that, he's talking about the things that he has seen in this vision so far. What is now? This is the messages to the churches of John's day. So chapter 1, the things that he has seen. What did he see? The glorified Christ. He saw angels. They were giving him this message, telling him what to do with it, telling, telling him the purpose of the message. Those are the things that he has already seen. 
And then he talks about what is now. What was now for him was the church age. That's why he's writing to those seven literal churches. That's chapter 2 and 3. And then he says what will take place, chapters 4 through 22. When we take those three little statements, it's really easy to understand Revelation. Don't complicate it from there. Look at it as such. The church age, or what we see Daniel refer to as the 69th week, we know that we learned about those weeks of years in Daniel, that, that the church age is that 69th week, and we are there. Now, when that ends, we are going to go into the tribulation period of seven years, which is the 70th week. Remember, it's weeks of years, so it's seven years. From the crucifixion of Christ until the rapture, from that period, the crucifixion of the Christ to the rapture will be that 69th week. Now, that 69th week will go into the 70th week with that first seal where the Antichrist will come on scene and the 70th week or the seven years of tribulation will begin. The rapture happens, occurs between the close of chapter 3 and chapter 4. We saw that. Then the rise of the Antichrist. We see that again at the opening of the first seal. And he will execute a seven-year peace treaty, but will break it at the midpoint. You say, how do you know that? Daniel chapter 9, go read it. It makes all these things very clear. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it tells us that he's going to break it at a midpoint. At this point, uh, there will be no more false peace because the first three and a half years will be a false peace. Why? They'll be under a treaty, but he's going to break that. And he breaks that by committing what is known in Scripture as the abomination of desolation. It's some type of unholy sacrifice that is going to occur. During this time, God's judgment is going to come upon the earth, and it will be suffering and death and tribulation like the world has never seen, according to Jesus himself. After this three-and-a-half-year time period known as the Great Tribulation, or the times of Israel's distress, Christ is then going to return to the Mount of Olives. We know that is from there he will go out and march out with his army through the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Megiddo. He will defeat the forces of the Antichrist. I hope you guys are writing this down. Here's your timeline that you've been waiting for. And then Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And the beast and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire and of burning sulfur. Then the millennium, a thousand-year reign of Christ will begin upon the earth. And Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and everything will be fulfilled to Israel that he has promised them as his Messiah here on this earth. All of that will come to fulfillment. Israel will have her day as she has been promised. God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. Aren't you thankful for that? After this, Satan will be released from the abyss and go out and deceive all the nations and the people that exist outside the millennial kingdom. He will bring them back to wage war against Christ one last time. And as we've already said tonight, they will be destroyed by fire that comes down out of heaven. And then when that happens, the dead unbelievers of all kinds, death and Hades, and even the sea, give up the dead that are in them. They will stand before the great white throne and they will be judged for their sin they will not be found in the book of life. Therefore, they will be cast into the lake of fire. Um, literally, not symbolically, into a literal lake of fire. They were raised to life. And they were raised to life and they were given bodies. And those bodies are reserved for eternal death. That's why it says this is the second death. 
as we who are in Christ will live for all eternity, those who are not in Christ will suffer and die for all eternity. And they will suffer and die according to the deeds that they have committed on this earth. Yes, there will be different levels of torment in hell. But hell at its most shallow depths will still be hell. Don't forget that. Some people say, well, I just want to skate by and maybe get a good seat in hell. There are no good seats in hell. They're all bad. Some are worse than others. Then after this, we know the earth as we know it destroyed and recreated. The new heavens and the new earth will be established. New Jerusalem will come down. And we who are in Christ throughout the ages will rule and dwell with Christ forever in the holy city of God. Here in this holy city, all of us who are redeemed will be with him forever. And that's how it ends, or better put, that's how it begins. Uh, What a day that it's going to be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this journey that we've been on. Lord, I pray that there has been great clarity about this book, that it's not mystical or weird, intimidating. But all we really need to do is trust in the illumination of your Holy Spirit as we open this book up and read it, just like we read everything else in Scripture. Thank you that you have given us men here who are willing to literally interpret the Word of God, to take an approach that so many are running from and abandoning today. God, may we be true to the literal interpretation of Scripture. Lord, thank you for showing us what the Word of God says, how it applies to our life. Lord, we thank you for the blessing that we have received and will continue to receive by reading and studying this book. How do we know that we can count on that blessing? Because you promised it. You are faithful. Lord, we thank you so much for the redemption that comes through Christ, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Lord, I pray once again for any man who's here tonight who doesn't know Christ as Lord and Savior, that tonight, Lord, that you, by your grace, would quicken his dead soul to life, that he could see his sin and see his need for you, and that you would empower him to cry out in faith and repentance and believe in Christ and be saved even this very evening. God, I thank you for these men. I thank you for their diligence, their endurance, sound doctrine and truth. Lord, we look forward, if it be your will, to meeting together again for whatever you have for us next. We are excited about that. We can't wait to see what you have for us. Lord, if it be your will to take us home before then, Lord, we ask, take us home. Take us home. that We may worship you at your nail-scarred feet. We love you. We thank you so much for loving us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world.